Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody, this is Hollywood from the gorgeous ladies of wrestling, and you better be watching Stu's Wrestling Podcast, because if you don't, I know where you park your car. You're listening to Stu's Wrestling Podcast, established 2019, direct from the North Wales coast. His verbal skills definitely outweigh his wrestling ability. It's time for British Wrestling's Sharpshooter, your host, Stu Palmer. Before we get into episode 51, I would like to say a big, big thank you to everyone who has listened across all platforms. We are now in more platforms than ever. Deezer, you name it. Amazon, shortly, very shortly. Still waiting approval for that. And with Audible. But you can get us across the board now because we've switched podcast hosts. We are with Buzzsprout. We've come away from Podbean. We get more stats, stuff like that, analytics. So it's better for us as a show. So thank you. Get subscribing, get liking, get sharing. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram. You can find us on YouTube. Just type Stu's Wrestling Podcast. I'm not forgetting Twitter. Type Stu's Wrestling Podcast in. You will find us. Please follow us, like us, give us a review. Apple, Spotify, everywhere. Give us a review. It's great to see the feedback. Good, constructive. If you've got some bad criticisms, please, please fire away. We'll we'll take it. We'll speak about it. We'll try and prove as we go forward. Right, without further ado, it is episode 51 and we are going to Columbia, South Carolina. We are still in America, across the pond, and it's the former WWF, WWE, WCW, All Japan Pro Wrestling star, Del Wilkes. Prior to his wrestling career, he was a standout as an All-American in college football, playing for the Gamecocks. You'll get to hear all about that. Transitioning into wrestling, going to the fabulous Mueller School because it was local to him in South Carolina. So that's where he got his start. You'll hear about all that. We talk about his career starting out AWA as the Trooper and developing the character as the Patriot going into the GWF. His first stint in WWF, which was quite short, relatively short. You'll get to hear about that. Tagging with Marcus Bagwell, Buff Bagwell, as part of Stars and Stripes in WCW. There's so much we cover. There's so much we cover. He is also on Unmasking the Truth every Sunday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern in the U.S., 1 a.m. here in the U.K., Unmasking the Truth with RV Klein, one of five or six shows under the WWAB umbrella. We love RV. We love the guys involved. So, yeah. Catch Dell every Sunday on that. Right, without further ado, episode 51, Stu's Wrestling Podcast. Let's strike while the iron's hot. Enjoy. 
my guest today on Stu's Wrestling Podcast, all the way from Columbia, South Carolina. It is Del Wilkes. You will know him as the Patriot. And he is also hosting a show with Harvey Klein, which is Unmasking the Truth, every Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Am I right in America? Absolutely. And Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern, yes. And if you want to watch it live in the UK, I'm in Wales, Del, by the way. Okay. 1 a.m. 1 a.m. in uh, the UK if you want to watch that live, but you can go back and watch it at your leisure at any time. It's all up there. It's not on Facebook presently. Yep. And I know oh, you're my- moving to Switch, aren't you, eventually? Yes, we will. Right now, you can catch it on my Facebook page live or on Avi Klein's Facebook page live. But if you're not able to get it live, like you, you mentioned earlier, you can still scroll down uh, and catch the episode at a later date. Cool, man. Cool, man. Mr. Wilkes, how has lockdown been for you personally? I've been asking this. This has been my opening question before we hit the wrestling talk. Well, obviously, it's affected all of us, uh, some more than others. Uh, I am in a business that was deemed essential, so uh, I've not missed any work. We've been open uh, normal business days and normal business hours. Uh, So from that aspect, uh, it's been the same. But obviously, in in just getting out in the public and going to certain places and doing things that we're accustomed to doing, you know, it has uh, put a big – it's made a big difference in that and uh, just the ability to be around others. Uh, I've had uh, some close friends recently that were, you know, hospitalized and not being able to visit those uh, was very tough, but we adapt and uh, we just get on the best way we can. But I can fortunately say that I have not uh, had the virus, nor has anyone in my family, nor has any close friends of mine. So we're very fortunate. What are the numbers like uh, around there in South Carolina as, as the state? How have the numbers been there? Obviously, you see, we see New York on the news over here in the high levels. What the, what? Well, I think our governor has done a good job. I think the people in place here in South Carolina has done a good job. Now, obviously, I don't have access to the exact numbers, but just like a lot of states, uh, several weeks back, we, uh, we did uh, you know, experience a spike. Uh, but I think now our numbers are starting to go down uh, and the death rates are starting to go down. Obviously, we're doing way more testing than we were, uh, you know, a couple of months ago. So it seems like we've got this thing headed in the right direction. Uh, just how long it's going to take to get back to normal, nobody knows. And what will normal be? Nobody knows what that'll be either. I'm going to get into a bit of wrestling here. All right, um, let's do it. When did you first come across pro wrestling? I'm just like saying, but like prior prior to you doing your football and stuff, I'm going to get onto the football. I want to know like when you first encountered pro wrestling in your young it years. It had to be at an, at an early age. I grew up a big wrestling fan, and I'm going to pro- I'm going to say I was probably seven or eight years old. Uh, I was born in 1961, so it would have been in the late 60s uh, when I first uh, remember watching pro wrestling. Uh, my mom and dad would let me watch it every Saturday morning. Here in South Carolina, we got Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling uh, with Bob Cottle doing the TV. And then we could also get on Saturday nights Florida Championship Wrestling. And I think he came on at 11 or 11.30 at night, of course, hosted by Gordon Soley, the great Gordon Soley. And I attended my first live event in 1971 uh, at a venue here in my hometown called uh, the Township Auditorium. 
And it's a pretty iconic building for pro wrestling throughout the years. And at the age of 10, a family friend uh, took me to my very first pro wrestling show. And I don't remember any of the matches except the main event. And I'll never forget that. And that was Jack and Jerry Briscoe against Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson. And it couldn't have been a better night for a 10-year-old kid because I was, I was a huge fan of the Briscoe brothers. And to get to see those guys in person was just a, a huge thrill for me. That's cool, man. That's cool. Whichever guys did you gravitate to? Well, obviously, Jack and Jerry Briscoe. Uh, I would catch Dory Funk on Florida Championship Wrestling. So the Briscoe brothers, Dory Funk, Wahoo McDaniel, uh, guys like that were the ones that, that I gravitated to, and, and I'm a big fan of those guys. That's cool, man. That's cool. Now, you were a very successful college football player. You were an All-American. How, how was it for you, your, your football career, in terms of the college days? Well, there were two things uh, as a kid uh, that I was totally infatuated with. One was pro wrestling, and the other – I was a sports fan across the board, uh, basketball, baseball, football, but I gravitated to football. And I grew up in a family, uh, not so much my dad and mom, but my dad's brothers, my dad's father, uh, and a lot of my cousins on my dad's side that had attended the University of South Carolina, graduated from there. And so through them, I developed a love of Gamecock football. And uh, so as a kid, there were two things that uh, I dreamed of doing one day when I became an adult. Uh, and that was play football for the Gamecocks and to hopefully one day become a professional wrestler. So I was very fortunate that I got to do both of those. But uh, going to school in my hometown, wearing that uniform that the Gamecocks wear, playing at williams Bryce Stadium where the Gamecocks have played now for over 70 years, that was a big deal to me. And it was truly a dream come true. So how long was it from finishing up with football through college and then going into wrestling training? It was a couple of years. I got out of the University of South Carolina in 1984. Uh, that was a very special year in Gamecock football history. Uh, we, we won 10 games that year and lost two. We won 10 and two. Uh, it was the first team ever in Gamecock history to win 10 games. And uh, we had a chance late in the season to play for a national championship. Uh, but we got beat late in the season, which cost us that. But I was voted the most valuable player on that team, the uh, team captain. And then again, I was a first-team consensus All-American. So I had a couple of shots in the NFL. In 1985, I was in Tampa Bay, and they traded me to the Atlanta Falcons in 1986. Now, the Falcons released me prior to the start of the 86 season. So once the Falcons released me, uh, I then uh, there was a wrestling school in my hometown of Columbia that was uh, run and owned by the uh, very famous lady wrestler, the fabulous Moolah, Lillian Ellison. And uh, she was from Columbia. She had her school there. So in 1987, three years after college football ended for me, uh, I paid my money and attended uh, Moolah's school training school. So it was just a brief, a brief three-year period after college football ended that I was in the ring. How was it segueing out of football and then going into training and learning the ropes? Uh, pardon the pun. How, how, I, thought how, it how would be, I thought it would be easy. I was, uh, I was a good athlete. I've always been blessed with athletic ability, especially to be a big guy. 
So in uh, football is a tough, tough sport mentally and physically. Uh, just the physical contact, especially at the position I played, offensive lineman. Every play, you're literally battling another man, trying to dominate, physically dominate each other. So I thought I was prepared for anything. But once I got to Moolah's and I started taking bumps, and the next couple of days I felt uh, – uh, the bumps, and I felt the repercussions of that. It was tough. I, I was hurting, and I was sore in muscles that I did not think that I had. So it was a lot different than football. I thought I was prepared for it. I thought I could handle it, and I did handle it. But I did not, I did not expect to, to be beat up the way I was and the way I felt. What was the time frame then going into your first match? I love asking guys this. Her school was supposed to be six months of training, and uh, she ran uh, the Midlands of South Carolina, uh, the cities and towns in, right here in the middle of South Carolina, in the heart of South Carolina. So I guess it was probably about five months after I'd started my training process with Moolah that she ran a show in a tiny town called Hampton, South Carolina, and uh, we probably had 30 or 40 people there that night. Stewie, you would have thought it was 10,000 people there. It was my first opportunity to wrestle in front of a crowd and to get paid to do so. Now, I made 20 bucks that night, which felt like $10,000 to me. But, uh, you know, you couldn't have told me any different that I wasn't in Madison Square Garden when, in fact, I was only in front of about 30 or 40 people in Hampton, South Carolina. But I loved it. It was, uh, It's still one of the, the biggest thrills of my life that very first time getting in ring getting in a ring in front of a live crowd and a live audience that's cool that's cool now obviously doing my research i found out you're in awa in 1988 how were you approached to go there how, how did that come to fruition working working there well i'll go back to moolah and the fact that she ran shows uh here in south carolina and uh, she brought in wahoo mcdaniels on one of those shows now, Wahoo was in Minneapolis at the time, uh, working for Vern Gagne and Greg Gagne in the AWA. He was still active in the ring, but he was uh, doing a lot of booking as well and talent uh, research and things like that. And he had a permanent home in Charlotte. So uh, the AWA had a several-week break where they weren't going to be running any shows. So Wahoo came to his home in Charlotte and was there for a few weeks. And so Moolah booked him on one of our shows. And uh, so when he came and worked that show that night, uh, he just immediately took a liking to me. Uh, we had an immediate bond, an immediate friendship. And I'm sure a lot of it had to do with both of our football background. Wahoo was also a tremendous college football player and also a tremendous NFL football player. So we hit it off rather quick. And uh, he told me that night, he said, I'm going to be heading back up to Minneapolis pretty soon. And he said, I'm going to make Vern Gagne aware of you and make Greg aware of you. And he said, don't be surprised if you get a call in a few weeks and uh, they're probably going to be bringing you up to, uh, to see you in person and to get you in a ring in person and to, you know, see some matches. And uh, he said, so, uh, you know, don't be surprised if you hear from Vern soon. And it, he was right. It was just a matter of a few weeks that I got the call from Vern. And they wanted me to come to Minneapolis. And so I did. And I went up with a buddy of mine that, that I broke into the business with there at Moolah School. 
And uh, we were up there maybe for a couple of months, and business was real slow at that time uh, for the AWA. Uh, there was basically, it was just basically a TV company and basically just doing TV tapings for ESPN, which they were on ESPN five days a week, Monday through Friday, from four to five o'clock Eastern time here in the States. So we were up there a couple of months and there, were no, there was no reason for us to continue to stay up there. Business was just not happening. So I came back down south and then went to Mid-South and worked for Lawler. Uh, and Jerry Jarrett there in Mid-South for a little while. Uh, I was there. Brian Lee was there. Sid Vicious was there. Scott Steiner was there. Mark, who would later become The Undertaker, was there. So there was a lot of good young talent there working at Mid-South at that time. And so I was there for a couple of months. And then by this time, the AWA had picked up. Business was picking up a little bit. So I went back to the AWA for the second time. And that was when uh, I started working as a trooper. Just, just to go back to uh, Mid-South there, that, that was a plethora of guys. When you think a few yeah. years later down the track, could you have foreseen those guys getting to the level they got to at that time when you were in Mid-South for those couple of months? Well, it was obvious those guys had talent. Uh, it was obviously we're, we were all in the infancy of our career. Uh, but still, I think talent shines through no matter at what point in time in the career. You, you can easily spot guys with potential, uh, guys that have the ability to get better, to groom themselves. And uh, so it was a lot of fun. We weren't making any money. Uh, I, I, the biggest we, – we worked Memphis on Monday nights, Louisville, Kentucky on Tuesday nights. Uh, we were in Evansville, Indiana on Wednesday nights. And then a couple of spot shows on Thursday, Friday, and then Nashville on Saturday, and then uh, Sundays off, and then back to Memphis on Mondays. So we did an awful lot of driving. The biggest payday was Monday nights in Memphis. That paid 50 bucks. Louisville, Kentucky paid 40 bucks, and Evansville, Indiana paid 25 bucks. So we certainly weren't doing it for the money, Stewie. We were doing it because we loved it, and we were wanting to build a career. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm going to obviously go back in. You stated about the police gimmick as the trooper. Did you have a bit of control creatively coming up with that gimmick, or was that given to you by the powers that be and that the office? It's a, sort of a funny story on that. Um, Moolah's school was basically geared for girls. There had been a lot of very famous and successful lady wrestlers that had come through her school. There had never been any guys that had gone through her, her school that had ever had really what you would call a career. Uh, I was the first one and the only one. Now, there were local guys that she had there that would help train me and my buddy that I broke into the business with. And they were guys that had nine to five jobs, but on the weekend would work those shows that Moola would have here locally throughout the Midlands of South Carolina. She would send those guys up to TV tapings for the WWF occasionally, and they were used as enhancement talent, uh, you know, to go out and put a superstar over in two or three minutes. So they really didn't have much more experience or knowledge than I did. Uh, but they taught me enough, I guess. They taught me the very basics uh, on how to grab a headlock, how to take a bump, how to take a backdrop, how to throw a punch and things like that. And uh, so it was very limited training, uh, but it was at least a little bit training nonetheless. And um, 
or one of and the reason I was telling you about the guys that helped train me. One of the guys, his nine to five job, he was a deputy sheriff in a local county. Uh, he worked for the sheriff's department in Orangeburg County, South Carolina. And when he worked the shows for Moolah on the weekends, he basically wore his cop uniform to the ring and he called himself the super enforcer. And uh, he was just an extension. His character was of what he did for a living. So I'm in Minneapolis for a couple of weeks and he calls me up one day and asked me, he said, if I send you a videotape of some of my highlights and some of my matches, would you pass it on to Vern Gagne, on to Greg Gagne in Wahoo and just see what they think and see if they think I've got potential. I said, absolutely. So he mailed me the tape and I got it in about 10 days and I gave it to Wahoo. And uh, just a few days later, I got a call from Vern. Actually, it was Greg Gagne. And he said, hey, we need you to come over to the office. Dad and I, along with Wahoo, want to talk to you about something. So when I got there that afternoon, they brought up the tape that I had given to them that my buddy sent me. They said, uh, we don't think that guy has a chance in this business. We're not interested in him. He's not very good. But we like the gimmick and we like the character. And we think because of your look, because of your southern way of speaking, your southern drawl, your southern dialect, we think you would make a good policeman. Uh, a highway patrolman, a state trooper. And uh, so then that's how they came up with it. They, they shortened the state trooper down to the trooper. And uh, it was their idea that was passed on to me by a guy that was just wanting me to help him out. Cool. I read, obviously, reading up, you were tagging quite a lot there. How, how was it tagging with Paul Diamond? Or did, did you, were you happy tagging or did you want to be doing singles? How, how was well, it for you? I was doing both. Uh, they had me in a program with Larry Zabisco, who was the AWA champ at the time, and he and I had a series of matches. And several times come, you know, come within an eyelash of beating Larry for the belt. Uh, but I was also obviously doing a lot of tag matches. I'd done stuff with Brad Ringens, uh, Paul Diamond, and then later DJ Peterson. But uh, they had some good tag teams there at the time. So tag team wrestling has always been fun. Uh, you've got five guys in the ring counting the referee. So you can create a lot of action, a lot of distractions in tag team wrestling. And it was fun. And, and they eventually put the tag team belts on myself and DJ Peterson. As a matter of fact, we were the last uh, in the history of the company. We were the last AWA tag team champions, DJ Peterson and the Trooper. Who were you tearing it up with when you were champions? We were working against the destruction crew, uh, Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos, who yeah. uh, later on went to the WWF as the Beverly Brothers. Yeah, remember them well. Yeah, as the Beverly Brothers. Yeah, yeah. They were they were cool. They were cool, man. They were good. Very very good. Yeah. Right to forward on a bit more. You then went on to global. You went on to global wrestling federation, and you became the Patriot. Were you wrestling under the mask? when you were the Patriot there? Yeah, that, that again came about out of nowhere. Um, uh, this talk of the GWF, the Global Wrestling Federation, and the rumors that this company was going to build something big and going to potentially contend with the big two, which at the time was WWF and WCW. And uh, there was supposed to be this 
multi-millionaire businessman from Africa that was going to drop tens of million dollars into this. And that never happened. That fell through. I don't know if the guy was serious about dropping that kind of money. Don't even know if he had that kind of money, but that never happened. So a local business lady in Atlanta, Georgia, she had done very well in real estate. Uh, she became our financial backing. So finally, the dream and the talks of the GWF were going to come to fruition and it was going to happen. So Joe Petticino, his wife, Bonnie Blackstone, and Bill Eady were going to be the booking committee. And later, Eddie Gilbert would become a part of that booking committee. And uh, so I got a call one day from Joe Petticino. He said, we want you to be in Dallas, Texas for our very first GWF TV taping next week. And he said, we'll tape on Friday and Saturday nights. So I'm going to FedEx you a ticket and we'll see you in Dallas next Friday night. I wasn't told different. So I loaded up my trooper gear and took it with me. I thought that's what I was going to be doing. And literally about four or five hours before the show that night, uh, we were all staying at the same hotel, all the talent and all the office. We were all staying at the same hotel in Dallas. So I get a call from Bill Eady. And he said, I need you to walk over to Joe Petticino's room. Uh, Joe, Bonnie, and I need to talk to you. Now, I want to take you and your fans back. This was in 19, either 90 or 91, mm -hmm. when our military here in the United States had gone into Kuwait to liberate Kuwait because uh, Saddam Hussein had taken his military and occupied Kuwait. So the United States military went in to liberate Kuwait and did so very quickly. Uh, and uh, it wasn't much of a war. It was over before you knew it. But because of that war, patriotism in America was really at a high point. Uh, they were still very much behind the war effort and behind President Bush for what he did and what he was doing. So I walk over to Joe's room and I sit down with Bill Eady and Joe and Bonnie Blackstone. And they said, look, because of the level of patriotism right now in this country, we think it would be a good time for a patriotic wrestling character. And Bonnie, Bonnie had this old uh, brown grocery bag with her, these old-fashioned paper grocery bags. And she unfolded it, and she pulls out a red, white, and blue mask, red, white, and blue tights, red, white, and blue trunks. And then she had a, bit, a big hat box. And she opened it up, and she pulled out this Uncle Sam Abe Lincoln type smokestack hat. It had to be about three feet tall and it was red, white, and blue. And uh, they said, we're thinking of calling it the Patriot. And we think you're the guy that can pull it off. And I said, guys, I'm all in with the exception of one thing. I am not wearing that smokestack hat. I will not do it. If it requires me to wear that thing, I'm not going to wear it. But you put that aside, I'm all in. I'm 100%. And that night, uh, Stewie, in Dallas, Texas, there at the Sportatorium, the first time the wrestling fans had seen of or heard of that character. And when I walked down the aisle that night to go to the ring, that place erupted. And I'm getting chill bumps now just talking about it. But those fans went berserk, man. And they immediately latched onto that character. And I knew before I got to the ring that, hey, we're on to something good here. This is, some, this is something that's really going to – take my career to the next level, and it did. We can only imagine as fans how it feels for the guy, the performer, that when you have that eruption, we just, 
you know, we 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 go in the we go in the arenas, don't we, as fans? We hear, but how is it? How how was it getting that reception? Right it's off unbelievable. Right off it's the unbe- bat. It's unbelievable. It's really hard to describe if you've never experienced it. But to hear, you know, a few thousand people chanting your name, they're, they're, they're pounding their feet, they're clapping their hands, and they're doing it in unison. It's almost in the same cadence. And uh, it's an unbelievable feeling. And uh, it's something that not even a drug can give you. It's the kind of high that you can't get from any drug. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's, it's just a wonderful experience. Who did you enjoy wrestling at Global? I did. We had a great mixture of established veterans. Uh, you had guys like Stan Lane and Bill Eady and uh, the guy Al, uh, Al Perez that I was wrestling. Mm-hmm. So you had a good balance of, of, of veterans, guys that were stars, established stars. And then you had the younger guys like myself, uh, Marcus Bagwell, who was working as the handsome stranger, uh, the lightning kid, Sean Waltman, uh, uh, the Harlem Heat eventually came through there. So it was a good mixture of young talent and established talent. And they had a good concept. They really did. They just did not, they just did not have the deep pockets where they could compete with WWF or WCW. It was just a financial thing that really caused the downfall of it. Such a shame, really. But as you say, Vince was just going national, international, wasn't he? And swallowed everything, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he did. And, and had we had deeper pockets and more money behind us, who knows what could have happened. But uh, when you're trying to compete with Vince and, and with WCW and you're, you're, you're dealing with limited funds, it, it's eventually going to catch up and, you know, and be your death knell. You had your first foray into WWF, and I, did, I didn't know you'd gone to WWF in 91, 92. How, how was that at, your, at that point of your career, getting to WWF for that, for that time frame? Well, I had been called up to meet with Vince, and they flew me up to sit down and meet with Vince. And uh, we had a discussion. Now, I had a deal in Japan at the time uh, that I did not want to walk away from um, with all Japan. And uh, so they called me back. I, I was in between tours of Japan, and Rick Martel had gotten injured and was going to be off the road for, uh, you know, an unspecified amount of time. They weren't sure how long it was going to be. So uh, they brought me up, and, and I filled in for him. And I was out on the road with him for a few months, I guess, before I went back to Japan for the next upcoming tour. But I had the opportunity to go to work full-time there at that time. But I'll be perfectly honest with you, I had a great deal in Japan at the time, and I did not want to give that up. I didn't want, I didn't want to walk out on it because back then, uh, even more so than now, anybody that was into business back then will tell you that if you were working for either Baba or Inoki, then you, you were doing something special. That was a feather in your cap to be working for either one of those promotions, Old Japan or New Japan, full-time. And I had that opportunity, and I just didn't want to mess it up. So uh, I could have worked, went to work for Vince full-time then, but I chose not to. How did I was going to ask about All Japan. That's what I was going to go into. How did All Japan differ? Uh, the lifestyle, uh, the, the, the style of wrestling, the fans. Yeah, just some differences with Japan from your perception your perspective 
totally different. Uh, the first time I went, and I've told this story for years now, I, I went the first time, I think in maybe 1980, 89 or 1990, but I was still doing the trooper character. And I fully expected Western or American style matches, uh, especially, you know, at TV, things are always different, no matter which company you work for. It's more serious. It's more intense. Uh, you've got to make sure everything's right. Uh, with your match, you can't have any errors or mistakes. But at house shows and spot shows, uh, at least here in America, you can sort of take the night off and, you know, you're in the ring with a with a heel and the heel will take a couple of bumps and he'll roll out of the ring and get on the microphone and do what we call walking and talking and he'll berate the baby face and berate the fans and he'll do some mic work for a few minutes, roll back in the ring you know, take another couple of bumps from the baby face and roll back out and do it all over again. So you've killed a lot of time, but in essence, you've done very little. Japan, it wasn't that way. There were no baby face or heel. There was not that aspect of it. Uh, you didn't have a baby face. You didn't have a heel. There were no promos for the TV show. There were no interviews. Uh, every match had a clean finish. There were no, no double DQs. No countouts, no disqualifications, no outside interferences. There were no run-ins. They were clean matches, clean finishes, and therefore the matches lent themselves to be a more physical style of match because you weren't putting butts in seats based on good promo or, or good angle development. We were putting butts in seats and viewers in front of the TV on Sunday nights based on the quality of the matches in that only. So it was totally different than what I had experienced here in America. And that first time when I went, it was a three-week tour. And going as a trooper, I was totally unprepared for that. I, I really didn't know what to expect, and it turned out to be a different beast altogether. The matches were longer. Uh, we had finishes that were longer than matches you would have in the States. Uh, and these finishes that just have false finish after false finish, after false finish, one, two, barely kick out, one, two, a save. And it was just, uh, it was totally different. And I was totally unprepared that first time I went. But thank goodness I got an opportunity to go back later. Did you enjoy the challenge, Dal, at the same time, though? Oh, absolutely. I, I think anybody that, that likes to compete uh, and has any com competitive nature in them uh, I, it, it's a challenge and one that, that you want to take on. Uh, I'll never forget, I told my wife when I got back from that first tour as a trooper, uh, I got back after three weeks and I said, well, I have done my one and only tour I'll ever do for Mr. Baba. And she said, well, why do you say that? And I said, and I had some of the tapes that one of my buddies over there that lives in Japan, he would take the TV shows that were played during those tours and he would give them to us to take home at the end of the tour. And so I plugged those tapes in and we watched some of the matches. And she said, yeah, you're right. You are horrible. You stunk. And uh, so I thought I'd never go back. But just a couple of years later, uh, I was now doing the Patriot character. I just had more experience, Dewey. I just had more ring time under my belt. And anything that you do, the longer you do it, the more you do it, the more experience you have, the better you get. So Mr. Baba reached out to me in, uh, I think, the spring of 1992 about coming back as the Patriot this time. And uh, that was the one that uh, led me to working full time 
for Mr. Baba. How was the language barrier in Japan for you? It could be difficult. Um, the Japanese guys, uh, some of them, uh, you know, had knew English better than others. Uh, but uh, you could you could uh, communicate enough to put a match together, uh, to put a finish together. The most important thing about all matches are the finishes, and the finishes were so important over there. Uh, but with the help of of there were a couple of the referees in Japan that could speak good English, the Japanese guys, and uh, Kabashi uh, could speak pretty good English. And so through the help of those guys uh, and some of the other office guys, even the Japanese wrestlers that didn't know that much Ameri or that much English and those of us that were from America that didn't know that much Japanese, we were still able to communicate enough to put matches together. Now, it's a place I want to go to. And because you've gone to Japan, I'm going to ask it. It could be a yes or a no. Did you go to Ribera Steakhouse? Absolutely. It was a rite of passage. You, you had to go. I, uh, and you talk about, uh, you know, I told you that first tour, how unprepared I was for what, for what I would encounter as far as the matches and the style of matches. Well, since I'd been in the career, uh, I mean, been in the business, and even before I'd been in the business, uh, in the wrestling magazines, you would see pictures of guys in Japan with their Ribera Steakhouse jacket on. That was a, a big badge to be able to have a Ribera Steakhouse uh, jacket. And uh, so I couldn't wait to get to the restaurant to eat a steak uh, and to listen to some Elvis Presley. The guy was a big Elvis fan that owned it and get my jacket. But what blew me away, man, is when I got there is how small it was. I mean, it was one counter with about eight stools around the counter. And that was it. It was tiny. It was minute. And uh, you couldn't get many people in there. But still, I was able to get in there, eat a steak, listen to some Elvis, and claim my jacket. So I had made it. I had arrived. It's that age-old question that we all ponder. Is wrestling fixed? This is Bill Apter, and my answer to that is, I didn't know it was broken. So many of you know me from my days back at the classic wrestling magazines, and a lot of you from OneWrestling.com and OneWrestlingVideo.com. But I always get questions about various things I've did through the years to propel my career to where it is today as the world's most recognizable journalist in pro wrestling. What was my relationship with the McMahons? Was I the guy who started that feud between the actor, comedian Andy Kaufman and Jerry the King Lawler? What is Ric Flair really like? Who are my favorites? Well, all this and more answered in my book that you can get online or at your favorite book dealer called Is Wrestling Fixed? I didn't know it was broken. It's a great read, got great views, and hopefully you'll be picking it up soon too. So the answer to Is Wrestling Fixed? You know it now. I didn't know it was broken. This is Bill Apter, and I'll see you at the matches. GTG, often imitated, but never duplicated. Kind of broad at the shoulder, narrow at the hip. No other promotion. Give us any lip. We're the best of the best. The beast of the East. SOS, simply out of sight. GTG. When he said, Good times go to how were you approached to come into WCW then? Obviously, I want to talk about Stars and Stripes with Marcus Bagwell, but 
but yeah, how were you approached? How did that come come to fruition with WCW? Through the connections and friendships I made while working for the AWA, uh, the biggest one was Greg Gagne. Uh, Greg and I are still friends to this day. We still communicate on a regular basis. Uh, but Greg had gone to work for WCW uh, as one of the guys on the booking committee. And then when I was in the AWA, you know, um, Eric Bischoff was, was our TV guy. He called our matches on TV on ESPN for the AWA. And at this time, he was in charge of, uh, of WCW. So through, through my friendship with both Eric and Greg, uh, Eric reached out to me and uh, wanted to sit down and meet with me. So uh, I'm only three hours from Atlanta where I live, a three-hour drive. So I drove over to Atlanta one day and sat down and met with Eric for several hours. And I walked away that day with the offer of a three-year contract. I just wanted to think about it for a night or two, but I left with the contract in my hand. Uh, I had an attorney look at, look at it. I discussed it with my wife at the time and then made the decision that was what I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to get back into the States while I loved Japan. Uh, I was a little tired of being on the other side of the world. You know, here in the States, when you're wrestling, even if you're on the West Coast and you live on the East Coast, if something happens within your family, somebody gets sick, uh, gets sick, you need to get back home, you can do so just in a matter of a few hours. But when you're on the other side of the world, it's not that easy. It takes about a day to get home. And uh, so I want to get back home in the States and work in the States. So when Eric offered me that three-year deal, it was, it was good timing, and I was ready to – I was ready to do it. So we that's that's how it led to that. How were the matches with Paul Orndorff and Roma, Paul Roma? Well, you know, when I first got to WCW, at first they brought me in as a singles wrestler. Uh, and then they came to me, the, the guys on the booking committee, uh, Flair, Bischoff, Ganya, Kevin Sullivan, Mike Graham. Uh, several of those guys pulled me aside and said, look uh, – we're thinking about putting you and Bagwell together. And I, like I said earlier, I'd known Marcus from the AWA, I mean the global days when he was wrestling as a handsome stranger. And they laid out the plan to me and what they wanted to do with it and where they saw it going. And at that time, WCW was full of good tag teams. The Nasty Boys, Pretty Wonderful, Paul Roma, uh, Paul Orndorff, uh, uh, Harlem Heat, uh, Buckhouse Bunk, and Dick Slater. So you had a series of good tag teams there. So we knew we could have a lot of good matches and that belt could be rotated around amongst those tag teams. So I was all for it and uh, glad we did it. We had a good run there, Marcus and I did. Uh, we were tag team champs twice. And uh, I loved working with Roma and Orndorff. Uh, uh, Paul and I were good friends. Uh, we fought a lot alike outside of the ring. We had a lot in common. Uh, Roma was a great worker, a good athlete. Uh, so, uh, you know, we had a lot of good matches with those guys and very proud of what we did with them. And then we also did a lot with Harlem Heat, with Stevie Ray and Booker T as well. So uh, enjoyed the tag teams that we worked with. And, uh, and, you know, we had some good matches and won those belts on a couple of occasions. Quite like, you know, going through all them tag teams, what a plethora of tag teams. Yeah, Incredible. a lot of Incredible, incredible. How was it from a backstage aspect there? For it wasn't, I didn't find it to be to my liking. Um, it was very cliquish. 
when you've got so many guys on a booking committee, uh, all those names I mentioned, then most of the guys have a tendency to kiss up to one of those guys or to more uh, than just one of those guys. So it was a very cliquish company, and I'm not that way. Uh, I'm hired and paid very well, very handsomely to do my job. I'm there to do my job. I'm not there to try to kiss someone's backside to enhance my career. If what I do in the ring uh, cannot enhance my career, I have no intentions of uh, you know, snuggling up next to somebody to befriend somebody to further my career. I'm just not that way. I was there to do what I was paid to do, pick up my bags, leave, check into the hotel room, hit the road the next day, go to the building the next night, and do it all over again. So it turned into a very cliquish organization, a very cliquish company, and it just wasn't very fun. As a matter of fact, I've got to say it was probably – one of the more miserable times in my life. Uh, I signed a three-year deal there, and the first year went pretty good. But about that time is when they they scored the big coup by bringing in Hogan away from the WWF. And they also brought in Beefcake and Randy Savage and Duggan. So they were bringing in a lot of big-name guys that were coming off that WWF roster. And all of a sudden, the focus of the company became Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan's buddies. Now, I can understand the focus on Hogan. Uh, that was the biggest name in the industry at that time. That was a big deal for them to sign him away from the WWF. But you can't run your company just on one guy. And you've got to have everything else around it that supports that. But if you weren't a friend of Hogan's, if you weren't a buddy of Hogan's, or if you did, didn't kiss Hogan's backside, then you really weren't figured into anything. And so it became apparently clear that Marcus and I were just, they had no plans. They had no plans with Pretty Wonderful or Harlem Heat. It just uh, became all about Hogan and his pals. And uh, so I was very, very, very unhappy. And uh, Baba had reached out to me about coming back. And I met with Bischoff one day. And uh, I just said, look, dude, I want out of here. I'm not happy. You're not doing anything with me. You're not going to do anything with me. I'm not a part of that circle of friends of Hulk Hogan. I'm not going to be. I've got a chance to go back to Japan. So why don't we just part ways? Let me out of the remaining year and a half of this contract. I'll go back to Japan. WCW fans will not see me on TV. I'll be on TV halfway around the world. The people in America will not see me. Just let me walk and let me go and he wouldn't do it. So I walked anyway. I was supposed to be at a pay-per-view, I think, in Tupelo, Mississippi, and uh, I let Marcus know that I would not be there, and I would not be coming back. I owed it to him. That was my tag team partner, but I did not tell anyone else. And when I was supposed to be in Tupelo, I was on a flight to Tokyo, Japan. Did they hit you with anything, breach a contract on, on their end? They tried. Um, when I landed in Japan, uh, first thing I would always do would be call home, talk to my wife, make sure she's okay and the kids. And it's about a 14 or 15 hour process with all the flights and layovers you have to fly from the States to Japan. So by the time I got there and I called her, she said, look, she said, Bischoff is wearing my phone out big time. She said uh, he's left message, threatening messages. Uh, he had even FedExed a letter. Uh, 
and uh, all these things that he was going to do, take me to court and stuff like that. And I told my wife at the time, I said, ignore him. Just ignore him. Don't answer the calls. Let him go to voicemail. Erase him. Just ignore him, and he will go away. He sent Baba a letter as well uh, while I was on that tour, and Baba approached me about it. And I told Baba the same thing. I said, Mr. Baba, I said, ignore him. He'll go away. And sure enough, he did. He eventually did. I, I didn't mean enough to him at that time for him to pursue me and take any legal action against me. And I knew he would do it. I'd like to talk. I'd like to talk about you teaming with Kenta Kabashi. Obviously, one of the Japanese legends, highly regarded. How was that? Obviously, you went back to all Japan. So I think, yeah, I'll, I'll ask you about Kenta and how that was for you personally. It was great. Um, the first time I went, uh, it was obvious that Kabashi was up and coming. And Mr. Baba did not do things fast. He did not do things quick. He did not rush anything. He took his time in developing talent and moving that talent up the roster. And it was obvious that Kabashi would eventually get to the top of that roster with Mazawa and Kawada and Tauway. But he was the youngest of those four. And it was obvious, too, through the eyes of Mr. Baba uh, that uh, he had somebody in me that he could push as well and sort of bring Kabashi and I up through the ranks together. So that first time I worked with him, uh, we had a lot of matches against each other. We had uh, a couple of 45-minute broadways, and uh, it was a pleasure working with the guy, whether I was working with him uh, as my tag team partner or working against him in the ring. It was fun. We never had a bad match. There was never a misstep. He had tremendous enthusiasm, tremendous passion, tremendous will, uh, the desire to want to learn, to get better. Uh, and I've never, I've never, ever, he's at the top of my list uh, when people ask me to rank who I think are the greatest wrestlers ever. Uh, I always start with Kabashi. Now, he may not be first on everybody's list, but he's first on my list. I'm glad I've, I'm glad I've asked you that. Yeah. Glad, glad i put that to us. That's nice, nice, uh, nice. High praise indeed for him. High praise indeed. Right. On to WWF now, I'll segue into WWF. 1997, how did that come about? How were you contacted? How did the wheels get set in motion to start your run there? Well, there were guys there that were working for Vince, uh, uh, you know, in talent development, talent relationships, uh, in booking, uh, that I had good relationships from prior years. Uh, one was Jim Cornette. Um, Jim's been a good friend and a good ally of mine. Uh, throughout my entire career, uh, and Bruce Pritchard. Bruce had come to Global and worked in Global for a little while, and I got to know Bruce through that, and then, of course, through JR. I'd become friends with JR, uh, you know, throughout the years. So uh, Vince, uh, you know, was was getting hit from all sides by JR and, and Bruce and, uh, and, and Cornette about the need to sit down and talk to me, to bring me back up, uh, and to see if we could work something out. So they reached out to me, and uh, I flew up and met with Vince, and we talked for several hours, just like I did with Bischoff. And he asked me my opinion on, on certain things and where I saw myself going, and he laid out some of the ideas he had for me. And uh, so I walked away from there that day with the offer of a three-year deal. Now, the one area, and I'm not going to say we disagreed because it was a respectful uh, 
differing of opinions. Uh, Vince did not think that the WWE or the W, it was still WWF, that the WWF fan base in 1997 in the late 90s would accept a masked wrestler and attach themselves to that character. He just thought the wrestling fans had become smarter than that and they just wouldn't buy into it. And my argument with him or the points that I presented to him were, well, Vince, everywhere I've worked, whether it was global, WCW, or the two times I've worked for Mr. Baba in all Japan, that character is very easily latched on to the fan base. And it's been a very popular character with the fan base. So I don't think your audience or the WWF audience would be any different. And uh, he just saw it differently. But the thing that he was, and, and that's what makes Vince such a good businessman, the thing that he was willing to do was to see how it worked out and how it played out. And uh, so I was one of the few guys, if you think about the way Vince does business, I was one of the few guys that went in there with my own character, my own gimmick that had already been developed, that had been over in other companies and other places around the world where I worked and was able to keep that character and that gimmick and Vince not have control over it or copyright over it. So uh, he said, well, he said, let's roll with it and we'll see how it goes. Well, he saw night after night and Monday night after Monday night, uh, the type of reaction I was getting when I walked through that curtain uh, and waving that flag and without fail, the fans would always uh, react well and, and just it would be a big pop when I would come through. So he saw that it was it was working. So that's when he approached me about uh, working with Brett and Brett had just turned babyface or he was in the midst of that. He, he was in the midst of that turning from babyface to heel. He was in the midst of that heel turn. And uh, it just felt like a glove with what Brett was wanting to do with his character uh, to now put the boots to the American wrestling fan base and say negative things about them and negative things about America. And then here comes the Patriot in waving that red, white, and blue flag. And it was just a natural fit and was just a, an angle and, an, and a program that worked well, very well. And I love Brett Hart, as I said to you, yeah. off, off camera. He's still my favorite. Met him once. He's a pro's pro, man. He is a pro's pro. Met him once, Del. Couldn't string a sentence together when I met him. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't normally struggle. I don't, I've always got a lot to say, but I just couldn't because I've idolized the guy from a kid. But yet the program of you, because it kind of, I wanted you to do well too, you know, as a fan. I, was, I got behind you, even though you're facing my guy. I, I bought in. I bought into it absolutely, hook, line, and sinker. So yeah, it was it was nice for us fans in the what, UK to see it. I tell you what made it an interesting thing is uh, I experienced something I had never experienced before, and uh, we were working, you know, all over America, night after night. Brett and I were working together, either main event or semi main event. And then we were out on the West Coast. We had worked up through our way from uh, Southern California up to Northern California. And then we'd gone into Seattle and worked. Uh, and the night after, we worked Seattle this particular night. And the next day, we went up to uh, Portland. And then we took a ferry that took us up through the West Coast of Canada. So one night, we're working in the States. The very next night, we're on the West Coast of Canada working our way across to the eastern side of Canada. And uh, immediately, overnight, 
within a 24-hour period of time strictly due to the geographic location of where we were at, I was instantly the heel in Canada, and Brett was the baby face. For 24 hours before, it had been the exact opposite. And it was an interesting dynamic to just open. Now, all of a sudden, the patriot, this flag-waving patriotic American, is now the heel that's getting booed out of the building, and Brett's the rock star that gets, you know, gets this huge pop. And, uh, and it worked. It was a wonderful thing to see and a wonderful thing to experience. How good, how good was he? Uh, I'd say on a personal level, and obviously from a wrestling standpoint, from a wrestling standpoint, how good was Brett in your estimation? Uh, one, of the, one of the best ever. And, and i tell you what made it easy about working with Brett. He's a pro. Uh, he does things the right way. I've never in any moment in my life when I stepped into a ring did I want to do anything like I wasn't in the ring to make people laugh. Uh, to do a comedy spot. Uh, I wanted serious matches, matches that were believable, that looked intense, and Brett was the exact same way. It was literally like working with the guys in Japan. There were serious matches, good finishes, you know, a lot of false finishes, uh, and it was intense. Brett worked a little snug. I was used to that. I'd worked in Japan all those years with Hanson and Gordy and Williams and uh, you know, the four pillars uh, of all Japan, and it was snug there. So I was perfectly fine with it. I wanted it to, to look as believable as possible, and so did Brett, and I think we were both able to accomplish that. And I'll give you an example, man, of how, how beloved he was in Canada. During this process of working our way across Canada, I don't remember which city we were in. I, I wish I could, but I don't. But we were working, we were main event, we were the last match of the night. And during the course of the match, there were six different occasions when fans, and they were all men, all guys, attempted to get into the ring to come after me. And security would stop them and pull them out of the ring. One time, the last time on the sixth attempt, one guy did get in the ring and was coming after me. And I had that kind of heat there simply because Brett, a Brett, a Brett was such a beloved figure in Canada, and they hated me for attempting to beat him up and trying to beat him and to do anything that they would perceive that would be harmful to their hero. So we literally had six attempts of people trying to get into the ring to do physical harm to me. So Brett and I decided to call the match well before we were planning on it to get out of there, to get me into the dressing room so I could get safely back to my motel. So we end the, the match quicker than we had anticipated, quicker than we had planned. When I get to the dressing room, there are four cops there. Uh, one of them says, let me get your keys to your rental car. I'm going to go pull it down close to the building. We cannot afford to have you walking through the parking lot going to your car. So they escorted me from the building into my rental car right outside the dressing room. Then they escorted me back to the hotel uh, in two different cars. And then those four cops together escorted me through the lobby of the hotel up to my room. Now, as we're going through the lobby, there are dozens and dozens of Bret Hart fans in the lobby. They're cussing me. They're calling me names. They're threatening me with physical harm. So when we finally get to my room, uh, one of the officers says, Here's my advice to you. Do not leave your room till in the morning. 
either order room service. If you don't want room service, let us know what you'd like to eat. We'll go pick it up for you. We'll bring it back to you. But if you leave your room once we're gone, then you're taking your own hand and your your own life into your own hands. And we certainly, certainly would discourage you from doing that. That's how intense their love was for Brett and their hatred for me. That's what, it just, I mean, imagine that today, internet being the way it is, but even back then, it was to believe, people believed everything, didn't they? People believed they, everything. They it's, did. And it made the business so much more fun. Uh, you know, they may have some small doubt in their mind, but they weren't totally convinced. You know, they still believed, as you said, and working across Canada with Brett and experiencing that while they were trying to hurt me and trying to get to me, it was wonderful. I loved it. I'm going to say you had the intro music before Kurt Angle as well. Kurt Angle took your music I always, I've always said this. I said that isn't Kurt Angle's song; it's the Patriot Del Wilkes' song. And a um, friend yeah. of mine was doing a wrestling quiz last week. He sent me a little message. I need some. I said, asked him who had "Medal" by Kurt Angle before Kurt Angle, and I, he, he was he was dumbfounded. He, he didn't obviously he wasn't watching that far back. So yeah, it was a quiz question, Del. Yeah, and and it happened. And I tell you the way I got the music. I was approached by. Uh, the people that, you know, that handle creativity there and and music and stuff like that, your ring entrances. And uh, they played several songs for me. I picked that one out. I liked it. And uh, I'm sure Kurt probably ended up ended up with it the same way. So it was given to given to each of us. That's incredible, man. It's incredible. I, I, love, I, I still love the song to this day as well. Brilliant. Superb, superb. Now, obviously, your career was cut short. With an injury, torn triceps, can you tell the listeners if you was a bit more about your personal experience with the injury? Yeah, I, when I got to the WWF, I was damaged goods. I, I knew I did not have a lot left in me. I signed a three-year contract, but there was nothing in me that, that led me to believe I would be able to complete that three years. I felt like whatever I get out of this will be gravy. It's a lot of money that I'm getting paid. I'm going to get as much of it as I can, but I had no illusions about finishing out those uh, those three years. And uh, I had had several severe injuries in Japan, a knee, a tricep, and they were ongoing. They were getting worse. I'd had a bunch of surgeries. And finally, my body just couldn't take it anymore. And uh, I was no longer able to go. But when you're dealing with those types of injuries and you're trying to continue to wrestle or you're trying to get back into the ring after a surgery, Pain medication becomes a big part of what you're doing simply to kill the pain. Uh, you're paid a lot of money to do what we do. And so if a couple of Percocets can kill the pain long enough for me to go out and get through a 20-minute match, then a couple of Percocets it will be. Unfortunately, after doing that long enough, uh, it becomes an addiction, and it becomes a major issue. And I remember the very first night I ever took a couple of Percocets, uh, Kurt Henning gave them to me. He said, take one, take a couple of these before your match, a couple before you go to bed, and you'll feel a lot better. And I did. Now, fast forward five years down the road, those two that Kurt had given me to take before match and two the next morning had turned into about 120 a day. Wow. I was wow. taking 20 at a time. Wow. And uh, so I was in the throes of a deep, deep 
bad addiction. I was a junkie and I couldn't get off of them. It's a very physically addictive drug. Any opiate based drug is, uh, it's no different than heroin. Your body becomes physically dependent on it. And, uh, so now I was just a full-fledged drug addict, and eventually these injuries ended, uh, ended my career, but the injuries, the pain didn't go away, so I continued just spiraling out of control uh, with the t- continued increase of the amount of drugs I was taking. When you take into consideration the 100 to 120 Percocets I was taking a day, along with the sleeping pills, the muscle relaxers at night, the Xanax, the Valium at night, uh, I was taking over 200 pills a day. And uh, I'm fortunate that I'm here alive to be able to talk about it and tell the story. I did ask you earlier, uh, prior to the interview as well, because I wanted to ask about your addictions and stuff. And you said you, you would talk about it. It's just respectful. You know, I'm respectful. I wanted to ask prior, but uh, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. That's uh, honest and open. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dal. Thank you for that, man. What did you do after wrestling then? What, what came after wrestling? Uh, for several years, nothing. Um, I did about a year in prison because of my addiction, which made, led to me forging prescriptions. That's a felony in, in the United States. And uh, so I did almost a year in prison. And then I spent the next year and a half uh, getting surgeries and recovering from those surgeries and trying to get better, uh, get clean, stay clean. So for the last 15 years now, I've been in the automotive industry. And uh, I'm at a Nissan dealership here in my hometown of Columbia, and I'm in sales, and it's been a wonderful second career for me. That's cool. My wife's got a Nissan, by the way, here in the UK. <laughs> Great vehicles. She's got, she's got a pulse. She's got a Pulsar. I don't know if you do them in America. The Pulsar. They, that model. they don't. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. I want to talk to you about a documentary that came out in 2015. Okay. Yeah, we did a documentary. I had a guy named Michael Elliott. Uh, approached me about five years ago. Um, he's done several documentaries. Uh, he had done one on um, uh, the Nikita Koloff. He had done one on the Rock and Roll Express, Harley Race. Uh, he had done one on Ivan Koloff. And, and uh, he had done a great job. And uh, he said that I was his favorite wrestler when he was a, a young boy and a teenager. And he had always wanted to sit down with me and approach me about doing a documentary. And so I agreed to do it, and he did a wonderful job. Uh, we had a lot of great people that participated, guys that I had worked with throughout my career, uh, Bobby Fulton, Stan Hansen, uh, Marcus Bagwell, uh, Bill Apter, and many others that were interviewed for the documentary, even family members, uh, one, of my, one of my children, my mother. Uh, so it's a three-disc set, uh, and we sell it off my website, which is uh, – www.dellthepatriotwilks.com. So you can get uh, that there. You can also get T-shirts and photos and cards and stuff like that. And uh, everything will be signed and sent to you. So you can order all that material off our website. But Michael did a wonderful job with the documentary. We've sold thousands of them and uh, have not gotten one negative feedback whatsoever. Always been a positive feedback. Now, I just want to segue into young talents now, guys that are maybe going to go into pro wrestling, pro wrestling training, want to do it as a career. What are Del Wilkes, the Patriots, tips for young budding wrestling, you know, guys that want to get into it? If it's what you want to do, pursue your dream. Don't let anyone discourage you. 
I had people try to discourage me. I ignored them. And it was some people that were close to me and loved me dearly. They just thought it was a wrong career choice. But I knew what I wanted to do. And if it's something that is passionate or you're passionate about, uh, be willing to make the sacrifice to do it. And you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. You're going to have to be working, whether it's in the ring, whether it's in the gym, whether you're working on promos, how to throw a punch, whatever it may be. You're going to be spending time doing that when others are out having a good time and lighting up the town. But your sacrifice, your dedication will be well worth it. It's a wonderful career. It's an honorable career. And uh, I tip my hat to every man and woman uh, that are participating today that are trying to become a part of it. Go for it. If it's your dream, don't let anything stand in your way. You can do anything you want to do. And be a part of this wonderful business. And listen, I haven't been in the ring. I think the last time I was in the ring for a match was in 2005. But I'm still a part of this business. I still get to do fan fest and meet and greet. So it's a, it's a business that will be with you the rest of your life that you can benefit from and also share it with the great wrestling fans, which I think are the best fans on the planet. you catch much modern wrestling these days? I do not. I have tremendous respect for the talent. Yeah. I know what they've been through. I know the sacrifices they've made. Uh, and I have tremendous respect for them. I just don't like the way the product is being presented. Okay. And uh, that's not of their doing and their making. That's the people that run the companies and control that aspect of the companies. But I feel like they've taken away a lot of freedom from the artists and from the talent. Uh, I think they've actually smothered their creativity. And, uh, and that's not good. And I just don't like the way the business is presented and packaged today. I'm going to close out. I want you to talk about Unmasking the Truth, hosted by yourself and the wonderful Harvey Klein. I've been in contact with Harvey. He's been really supportive of the show. I'm supportive of all the podcasts on the WWAB umbrella too. So yeah, just a little uh, little bit about the show and what it entails for people that haven't seen it yet. Well, I, I did a podcast. Avi was doing a different podcast maybe about a year and a half ago. And he had me as a guest on that podcast, and he made an impression on me. Uh, his knowledge, uh, how he had prepared himself uh, for that podcast. And uh, I walked away very impressed with Avi. Now, I'd had a lot of people approach me about doing a podcast and doing one with them or someone they knew. And it just never felt right. But when Avi reached out to me, it felt right, and it felt like uh, the natural thing to do. And the one thing that Avi and I wanted to do and we wanted to stress is that this was not going to be a podcast about pro wrestling. I'm a professional wrestler. I'm a retired professional wrestler. It's been a part of my life for over 30 years. But I'm not just a wrestling guy. Uh, I have opinions and views about a wide range of things, uh, modern events, current events, uh, politics, things that are going on all over the world. Uh, things that are going on here in the country I love so dearly, the United States of America. And I didn't want to pigeonhole myself just into being a podcast about pro wrestling. I wanted it to be about other things and that we occasionally discuss pro wrestling. And that's what we do. Uh, we talk about things that are going on in America today, politically, socially. Uh, we talk about movies. We talk about entertainment. We talk about other sports. But we're not just that same old, tired, worn-out wrestling 
podcast. It go, goes back and covers what we did in Pittsburgh in July of 1997 <laughs> at Eagle. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I, I get people asking me to do review shows. Uh, I've had loads. I, I said, no, no, it's not my format with, the, with this. I just won't do it because you, you have an opinion, Dell. And then the whole wrestling community pipe in, chime in, you're wrong, you're this, you're that. And yeah, I just think it's overdone. And yeah. it, it, like you said, it's happened. It happened years ago. So I don't know. I've just, yeah. got, I've just gone off on one there. I apologize. No, you're fine. I totally agree with you. And there's more to me than pro wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, absolutely. And, uh, so I want to talk about a wide range of topics. Uh, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but... I think I know a little bit about a lot of things, and obviously I'm very opinionated about a lot of things, and uh, you don't have to agree with us uh, to be a part of the podcast and to interact with us and give your opinion. As a matter of fact, we welcome those that don't agree with us. Uh, that makes for good debate and done in a very uh, non-threatening kind of way. And uh, so I'm proud with what we're doing. As we mentioned earlier, it's every Sunday night. Uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in the States. And you can catch it on my Facebook page uh, or Avi Klein's Facebook page live. And we will eventually be going over to Twitch as well. Superb, superb. Dal, can you plug your social media, please, for the fans, viewers, listeners, just to clarify? Absolutely. Uh, that same Facebook page, Dell Wilts. Uh, I've also got a Pro Wrestling Legends Facebook page from the 80s and 90s, uh, but mainly the Dell Wilts. Facebook page and also on Twitter, and it's at all caps at Del Wilkes, D E L W I L K E S on Twitter as well. My guest today, all the way from South Carolina, wrestling legend, WWF, WCW, AWA, all Japan. I've got to get all Japan pro wrestling in. Mr. Del Wilkes, the Patriot. Thank you ever so much, man, for coming on. It's been an honor. Thank you for the honesty, just everything. And it's been great. I've enjoyed it. Loved every second of it, having you on. Well, I appreciate you having me on. And I want to say this as well. I appreciate your patience. I know that there were several times we had planned on doing no. this earlier, but I was dealing with some issues with, uh, with my dad who was suffering some health problems. And then I had uh, some health issues myself. So I thank you for enduring uh, through that and giving me the opportunity to reschedule a couple of times. So I appreciate your patience, and you've done a wonderful job, man. I've enjoyed being on here with you. Thank you. Dal Wilkes, the Patriot, thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. Have a good one. This week's intro and outro for the show is the Zangwills, New Heights. You can check them out across all streaming platforms. You name it, they're on there, all their tracks. Give them a follow, give them a listen. Great band. Podcast Network.